Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that takes us through the New Testament by explaining explaining I messed that up (laughs) by explaining, exploring, and experiencing the text. All you Hebrew, Shebrew, Newbrew listeners, sorry about that opening. Our guides to the New Testament are Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Now, before we begin, I'm reminding listeners that you can view all of the Newbrew episodes on and see Tony and Charmaine's slides on the Latter-day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel, so be sure and check that out. So today's episode is what Tony has called, I uh, got an email this morning, party with the pastorals, which would be really fun if the pastorals weren't so horrible. So that's where we are today. We are in first and second Timothy. And um, these are a little different than the letters we've been exploring the, the letters of Paul. So as fun as it's going to be, let's get into it on First and Second Timothy. Tony, Charmaine? And I did say party with the pastorals in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes more sense then. All right. So one of the first things you need to remember when you're reading the past pastorals is, so this is First and Second Timothy and Titus, um, but we'll mostly be looking at First and Second Timothy today is that they have a problem. You know, what do you do when the founder of the church is long gone? He's been dead for a while. And you have these churches that you're trying to lead and trying to give advice to. And there's new struggles that Paul never had to deal with. And we don't know what he would say. And we're not quite sure how his theology would respond to these things and but we need to address the realities that are happening right now and we need to figure out how are we going to help this new christian movement survive into the future and so there's this trying to find this balance between that so the author is one of these people who's trying to find the balance between what has been and what is presently happening, the crises that are happening in congregations all the time, and how are we going to move forward in a culture that um, in lots of ways looks like it's trying to um, undermine uh, what we're about. And, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So how do we get in there for the long haul? So there's all those things that the author is having to deal with. You're making a compelling case, Charmaine, but I'm buying none of it. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I I want questions and your discomfort. We we need that because, because this is one of those places. It's so important to understand this because that latent tendency among people to think of scripture as God's words, words right from God's mouth that we're supposed to live by, that's deadly when you come into this kind of a setting where the setting is completely different from the initial impulse of the church. The leaders are more affected 
by um, longevity, the idea of how do we kind of customize ourselves to society so that we don't get killed, <laughs> we don't get wiped out, um, but also their own discomfort with um, some of the radicalness that is in this message. The other thing to remember as we're reading first and second Timothy, and I'll mention it again, but they don't have a set of the gospels lying around. They may have seen one of the gospels by this time because we're, we're saying they're around about a hundred, maybe latest 110. Um, they might have a, bits and pieces of what will eventually be a gospel, but they don't have all the stories of Jesus and his mm -hmm. teachings that are in the gospels. They probably don't even have what we have, which is seven letters from Paul that we know came from Paul. They might have one or two, but they don't, you know, they, things have been mostly passed on orally and now they are the leaders in the church and they got to figure it out. So I think that's really an important begin place to begin and to, to realize that they're both in a very different place than previous writers like Paul a different place from us. And, um, and yet some things may still be relevant um, for us. So I, I, that's where I would start is mm -hmm. they've got a problem. <laughs> so uh, what do we got here? We've got three texts, first Timothy, second Timothy and Titus, and they each come off as letters. On the surface, they are letters. The second one, second Timothy, is what scholars call a testamentary letter. In other words, 2 Timothy is different in, in that it's trying to represent what would have been Paul's last words to one of his closest protégés. And Timothy and Titus... Paul's imagined words. Mm -hmm, Paul's imagined words, yeah. We're going to come to this in a minute because we're <laughs> going to get right out here on the table. These critical scholarship does not believe these books were written by the historical Paul during his time. So we're going to get that out on the table and flesh it out here in a minute. But... Timothy and Titus, who were historical figures, part of Paul's mission and his delegates, and you know, they represented him, uh, they would have probably been dead by now too. So Timothy and Titus become representative figures in these letters. They represent local leaders in whatever these congregations are. They represent local leaders uh, two generations after the at, time of at Paul. Least. At least two generations after the time of Paul. We're talking, these are very late texts. In fact, one of my professors uh, whose Greek was way better than mine once said, when I read these, this is the Greek of the second century. And so uh, 100 to 110 is a, is a pretty darn good date for them. Uh, you really can't push them back earlier than that in terms of the language. So, so uh, the question then is, let's, let's talk about the authorship question, because what we have to deal with now is what biblical scholarship refers to as the phenomenon of pseudonymity. Right, pseudonymity. It's a big fancy word. Pseudonymity means false ascription. It's an unfortunate word because false always sounds bad to us. <laughs> but uh, when scholars use it to refer to types of writing, what they mean is that we're, we're looking at a text whose actual author is unknown, but who used the name of a revered figure from the past. So that's the practice of uh, pseudonymity. A pseudonymous text is a, a literary type in which the author uses somebody else's name. In this case, uh, Paul's name. But it was this, this practice was common in Jewish circles. 
uh, from about the fourth century BC on. Uh, the book of Daniel was not written by a historical Daniel. The Wisdom of Solomon in the Deuterocanonical text was not written by Solomon. There's a whole bunch of pseudonymous texts under the name of Ezra. Uh, so as- And this was understood mm -hmm. that this, yeah. these weren't the authors. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was right. a, a commonly understood way of telling a story or giving a piece of history. Right, and, and it, it appears that pseudonymity arose in a time when, when people figured that the, the period of the, the period of, of sacred encounter with God was kind of past, and, but we're still, we still have new questions and new issues. How do we deal with the issues in our own time? Ah, we borrow the name of a figure from the sacred past, and we, as, as much as we can, write as if he were writing to us now. And so that, that seems... Uh, that seems like copyright violation in our context, but you got just we just have to like close off a whole bunch of assumptions we have about texts and about writing to, to understand this phenomenon in the ancient world. Though we're going to bring up here in a few minutes that this still happens today and it's and it is an accepted practice today. Um, we just may not think of it in the same way. Well, we have ghostwriting that happens today. Yeah. We have a spouse or a child finishing a series of books when the when the parent or husband or wife author authoress dies yeah. and and putting their name on it putting rather their name mm -hmm. exactly yeah so uh, borrowing here from from the scholar Luke Johnson who who points out that in the first century people distinguished between writer and author right we don't make that distinction but the first century did uh, to write in Paul's name in the late first century is to write under his authority. So it, it, the, the readers understand that this, this Paul is the author, but not the writer. And the, the readers of these texts would also have understood that Paul was long dead. Right. But right. they also would have understood that the, the writer, whoever he was, I'm assuming probably it was a he, that the writer has, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> has, has, yeah, in this case, with the pastorals, definitely. The writer, has some connection to some traditions that come from the historical Paul, and thus has a certain kind of authority to write them. Uh, but we, we, knowing what we know now, we, we cannot assign this, this text, these texts to Paul. Right. And also, it's really important to understand that modern biblical scholarship, and I'm talking about Catholic scholarship, Jewish scholarship, Protestant scholarship, secular scholarship, really has never considered pseudonymity as something like an act of fraud. Uh, the re recipients would have recognized the literary form. Everybody knew what they were doing. What happens is you get several generations removed in the canonization process, and the name Paul now becomes a sacred name. And so, so it's just assumed that the text had to have been written by Paul. Right. Yeah, but they're, they're just too distant from the original situation. And again, we remind everyone that these things were not written to be scripture. They were written to groups who were having specific situations and that they needed to deal with. And so, um, you know, there's not a sense either that they're being, they're, they're being fraudulent, but they also, um, but that may not have gotten passed on to the future generations. The, the history of how this was written was not necessarily passed on, um, just the words. And so our human tendency to, to make everything like, well, it's there on the page. Well, you just read it and that's what it means. And it's like, mm, well, 
not always. There's often a history behind it. In, in scholarship, we, we refer to these Pauline letters as Deuteropauline. That includes First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then Second Thessalonians, Colossians, and Ephesians, those six. Six of the 13 letters that have Paul's name on them are Deuteropauline. And a little later, we'll show you a picture. In just a minute. Yeah, a little, we'll show you a picture of, of how, very likely, how this Pauline tradition developed. So that's just important to know. But you know what? In the Hebrew Bible, in Isaiah, we have Isaiah of Jerusalem. And then as many as two or three other prophets or prophetic writers who continued that, that author's work under the name of Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. So it, it's not an uncommon thing. It's just, it just... It, it bothers contemporary readers because of our sense of ownership. Plus, we've had 500 years of, 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 of uh, the, a Protestant assumption that the Bible is the sole authority for theology. And if it's the authority, it must be everything must, and it must be true. And therefore, if it says Paul, it must be Paul. That's just bad, sloppy theology. And not even the reformers like Luther thought of it like, quite like that. So, so we've got to get over our sloppy theology, and we have to get over our sense... Uh, our individualistic sense of, of authorship. We want to understand what's going on Which in this text. More our problem than it is would have been a problem in their time. Right. So, uh, Karen, you've already given some examples, but there are some others uh, that that still a common literary thing to use. I don't know how many might be in might be familiar with the Boxcar Children, which is a story about four children who are orphaned and uh, live in an abandoned boxcar. And these, the first 19, 19, I think, were written by Gertrude Chandler Warner. Um, she died in 79. Um, but there are, there continued to be books written, and there's like 150, you know, and they're brought up to date. So they're not from the, you know, 1920s or 40s when she was writing. Um, they're from, 2020 and kids are where you know have cell phones and <laughs> all of that but she's long dead but they all are say that they are authored by her there's not even another author mentioned as the uh, subsequent author uh, and so this is and this other series that are that way too that they're written by different authors that's acknowledged uh that she's not around anymore but um but that's the only name that's on it and some other things like the Gene Roddenberry with, and I don't know if I spelled that right, but anyhow, um, with a lot of the Star Trek things, his name will be there as creative inspiration or something like that. Even though, you know, I think he died in um, 91. And so, you know, anything that's come after, it might have had some of his starting ideas but not definitely he did not write it or produce it. So I think it's just good to remember that this is not so strange uh, from, from how we typically would look at things. I mean, it would probably be helpful if the pastorals, if the author said, writing in the name of Paul, inspired by ideas I think I got from Paul, <laughs> uh, but I'm not Paul. <laughs> but I'm not Paul, and I'm really upset with what's happening now, so I'm going to write it, period. <laughs> Right. So whether or not. Yeah, exactly. So where we'll go next then is. Do you want uh, to look at that? Uh, not quite yet. Okay. We'll, we'll the, pull out in a minute. The, the screen. The, yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll, I want to give the data first. Okay. We're actually going to give some data to show why scholars actually believe, I think rightly, that with these texts, the, the pastorals did not come from Paul. Um, 
I think before we do that, we need to we just say, well, what can we tell about the actual author? We can tell some things about the actual author. We the actual author of the pastorals appears not to have known Paul personally. Um, the the Deuteropauline text Colossians, one might argue that that author was close enough who he could have, but this author is two generations or more removed. He doesn't appear to know Paul directly, but only orally. He's got oral bits and pieces. Um, there's there's no there's no clear evidence in the pastorals that he had copies of like the Pauline letter. Charmaine mentioned that. In fact, in some places, uh, he says things that Paul would never have said, like the opposite of what Paul would have said. And so he doesn't have direct access to Paul's letters, certainly not a collection of them. Um, this author is more shaped by Roman cultural norms and wants and is struggling with how much to align with them. He, he aligns with them a lot more than, than Paul would, would have. And also, here's something that's quite different. The historical Paul, and some of the letters we've covered already, the historical Paul, when he, when he had a problem to deal with in a congregation, he, he wants to argue with it theologically, right? This author doesn't do argumentation. <laughs> this, this author does top down, don't ask questions. Here's what we inherited. Here's the tradition. He uses the word, uh, the Greek word paratheke, which means the deposit. We've got this deposit from the apostolic period. This is what we go with. And so if you want, if you want to stay faithful, you, you follow this stuff. And okay, if, I'm just going to, I'm just going to interject here for all our um, listeners who come uh, from a different restoration heritage tradition. This is Joseph Smith versus Brigham Young. That's what we're talking about in the difference in how the ideas are applied. Okay. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a nice analogy. Yeah. Right. So those concepts are still around, but how are they going to be used? And in this case too, there are gaps. There are places where the things Paul said, this author doesn't know how Paul would have dealt with this situation because it's completely different. And so he tends to rely on culture mm -hmm. in those places. And even if this author had had some of Paul's letters, they're not scripture yet. So he, he would have felt some kind of freedom to try and, try and use what he could of Paul to deal with his own situation. Um, and he deals with, with situations in a way unlike how Paul would have dealt with them. That's, I think it's quite telling. So now we're going to go to dad. How do, we, how do we know that this author is not Paul? Right. So here I'm going to rely on two scholars. I'm going to rely on Bart Ehrman, who's a very good New Testament scholar. And then the standard graduate school textbook for New Testament is a, a text translated from, from uh, German. by The text is by Werner Georg Kummel. Kummel's in, uh, Introduction to the New Testament is something all PhD students in the New Testament have to read. And so here's some data. Number one, in the pastorals, these three letters, there are 848 different Greek words. Of the 848, 306 of them occur nowhere else in the Pauline letters. In the Pauline letters that we know come from Paul. And even and even, even in another and even in Colossians and Ephesians, right? So there's a whole bunch of vocabulary here that is just not Paul's vocabulary. That means a third of the vocabulary in the Pauline letters is not even Pauline, right? And then 
of of those words, a third of them in the pastorals, right? right. A third, a third of them in the pastorals. You said in the Pauline, so yeah, yep, got yeah. it. <laughs> They're not not even not even not even Pauline. So, um, two thirds of those three hundred and six words are used by second century Christian authors. All right here's an example: the second century Christian bishop uh, Ignatius of Antioch uses the word "herodidaskaleo." Uh, which in Greek means to teach heresy, to teach what is other or different from. Well, guess where it appears? It appears in, twice in 1 Timothy. So we know we've got a word there that, you know, it's like, it's like, you know what? The word groovy doesn't show up before the late 1960s, right? So, so the word dates itself. Yeah. And, and it's possible that that word wasn't needed until this later mm -hmm. period mm -hmm. in the early Christian church's development. And suddenly there are these philosophies and and other theologies that are seen as taking them off the path mm -hmm. and so suddenly there's the need for this word that throughout but it's not until this time period beginning right. of the second century yeah. end of the very end of the first century and so um not certain words that paul does use are used differently here for example righteousness in the historical paul's writings refers to a, a whole new right relationship with God. It's a relational term. And it's dependent on Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not us doing stuff. Here in the pastorals, righteousness is the equivalent of the Greek word for piety, for being pious, upright, you know, decent citizens. Right? Praying at the right time and being socially acceptable in different settings. And Paul only once in the this undisputed letters uses the term the faith. He never, he never thinks of the faith as a body of ideas. Faith for him is a dynamic relationship. Abraham and Sarah like trust in God's promise in Christ. You throw yourself on this, this promise in trust. Well, in the pastorals, faith becomes the faith. It becomes a body of ideas, a body of traditions, the deposit, and so on. So um, also, First, First Timothy says that... Uh, that Eve was the deceiver, right? Doesn't blame sin on Adam, blame sin on Eve, right? Paul never refers to Eve like that. In fact, for Paul, when Paul wants to talk about the universal condition of human sin, he uses the phrase in Adam. So, so the author of 1 Timothy like completely reverses Paul's understanding of sin. For Paul, it's metaphorical. We are all in Adam. Everybody's last name is Adam is like one, one theologian has put it. But in, the, in, in, in Timothy, no, it's Eve's fault. <laughs> Eve was the, the, the deceiver. So, um, and also then in terms, of, in terms of grammar and style, the pastorals lack, Paul, Paul likes these little short words in Greek, nuni, which means, all right, so, right? Uh, Paul, that's how Paul writes. The, the pastorals lack that kind of, those characteristics of Paul's diction. So we've got all kinds of, of data that indicate that we're, we're not in the first generation of, of Christian thought and writing. We're, we're two, two generations at least removed from that. So what, we'll go to a visual now that from our perspective is a way to understand how the Pauline tradition develops. And I want to be very clear that first and second Timothy and Titus are part of the Pauline tradition, but they're a whole way out from the center. The center would be those seven undisputed letters, some of which we've covered and bothered Karen with in previous. <laughs> <laughs> I've read them all as we've gone through. <laughs> then we have a, a tear out second generation Colossians, 
Second Thessalonians, probably these are 70 to 85 in that, in that next generation once Paul is gone. Um, Colossians, you can kind of make a case that it's from Paul. It's not, you know, maybe about 55, 60% of current scholarship would say it's not really from Paul, but it's, you know, it might've been, but not really. Uh, Second Thessalonians is definitely not from Paul himself. Then you get out to Ephesians, first, second Timothy and Titus. And these are horses of a different color, right? We're dealing with 90 to 110. Ephesians style and theology is quite, though it, Though Ephesians is is very much an interpretation of the heart of Paul's message, clearly the style and the situation is not anything Paul had Paul would have written or had to face in his lifetime. And then First and Second Timothy and Titus are among the latest letters of the New Testament. Second Peter would be only later than them, like about 120 or, or after. So, so the, the Pauline tradition is developing in concentric rings, and of uh, in that last ring. Ephesians, the author of Ephesians knows Paul's thought really well, in fact, has a copy of Colossians in front of him that he's working from. But first and second Timothy and Titus, their knowledge of Paul is in terms of little fragments, little sayings, uh, but clearly do not, at least I think, don't have le- any Pauline letters in front of them that they're working from. So it's just a way to imagine this developing tradition. And, you know, we know that Paul dies somewhere, the earliest, probably 64 and the very latest 68. And so all of these um, markers that indicate that this is a much later writing um, is its own kind of very strong argument. So that's, it's, uh, and, and I think we would want to say as we go here, just because they're not written by Paul doesn't mean that, that they're not useful. Obviously they were useful to churches and leaders because they got passed along just like Paul's own letters and they got copied and they got sent to other places. And, and, you know, they eventually over this period of 300 years or so become scripture too. So um, by, by 400. So they were useful to some people. And, and it wasn't just that Paul's name was on it. There was some of the content in it that people found useful and um, made sure it lived on. So now let's, we're going to get into the issues behind the pastorals, because I think this, this really can help us understand uh, some of the difficult passages in them and what's going on. Uh, why, why does this author write this stuff, right? And so uh, uh, it's really important to recognize that the pastorals, um, and by, by the way, the term pastoral epistles has been used since the mid-1700s to, to, to link these three together. And modern scholarship would say, yeah, this is, this is the same author writing these three, but they're each different in their own way. So they each have to be kind of, we, we put them together the same. Uh, on, on the other hand, they really do need to be read individually to get the value of each of them. So Because I think one of the things that is a danger, it's been a danger for me. And as we've been going through these again, it's like, man, I really like second Timothy, second Timothy. And there's some really excellent stuff mm-hmm. there. And there's not all the baggage that I find in first Timothy against women and slaves and all of those kinds of things. And in fact, we had this long discussion about, you know, is there any scholarship that entertains the idea 
that First Timothy and Second Timothy might be written by different people. And some some scholars I've discovered since our conversation want to argue that Second Timothy has authentic fragments of a Pauline letter in it, but that's well, hard to prove. But his the, his use of grace and his idea of grace it's there in Second Timothy, and this um, this gentleness that we've talked about in Philippians. There's some of that in there. Mm -hmm. um, his his idea of of uh, right with being right with God is a gift through Christ. It's more there than it is in first Timothy, where in first Timothy, it's about doing this, 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 and this. So, um, so don't throw out second Timothy <laughs> because just because first Timothy is, is uh, very disturbing in some places, especially I think for yeah. women, uh, it, it is, and it should be seen as uh disturbing and not helpful. And so if, if all three of these do ultimately come from the same hand, how, how do we make sense of that? Well, one way to make sense of it is that the author being at this removed from Paul and not having Paul's letters in front of him to correct him, but knowing bits and pieces and fragments and trying to interpret Paul for Pauline churches much, much later, the, this author has not himself fully integrated Pauline ideas. He's working with cultural ideas and Pauline ideas and some fit here and some fit there. He doesn't have any kind of systematic way of pulling it all together like the Paul of Romans does. And so if this author had had Romans, I wonder what would be different, but he apparently didn't. So just a way to understand how, how first Timothy and second Timothy can be so different in tone, but also literary form. Second Timothy is written as these were, as if these were Paul's final words to his, his most beloved protege, Timothy. You know, what, what, what would you say if the executioner is coming down the hallway and the last things you get to say to the, the person who you trust most to carry it on, how, how would you say it? So it has a different, different feel to it, but, but, but here we have to understand that we take them as a whole. We are in an entirely different time and context from the undisputed letters of Paul. Um, Christianity has been around and now by this time, there's such a word as Christian and the Roman, Roman officials in different places have started to take notice and started to push back. And uh, if these letters come from the sec early second century, then a Roman governor in Bithynia, in what is northern Turkey today, is writing the Emperor Trajan and saying, what am I supposed to do with these people? <laughs> they, they are uh, they're atheists, you know, because they don't believe in the Roman gods. And that can't be good for the culture to have these atheists around. <laughs> so, so we've got, and Charmaine mentioned, the, the parousia has not happened. Christ has not returned. It's, it looks like it's going to be a long indeterminate future. And people, people are suspicious of us. How do we deal with all this suspicion? I know I have an idea. <laughs> we need to fit in. Well, let's, let's show that we're even better citizens than everybody else by how we treat people and how we um, live out certain conventions of society. We don't want to look like we're disrupting the order uh, in any way. And so let's show ourselves as, as people to be, um, and as, as examples. Um, yeah, we won't be doing the Roman worship and those kinds of things. We won't, we won't be doing those things on the festivals, but in the rest of the time, let's show that we're good people, trustworthy, honest 
live simply, that we're not, you know, we're not greedy and all of those. That our households and our marriages are going to look just like and even better than good Roman households and marriage. That's kind of the situation Mm -hmm. here. But also there's an internal crisis in these churches as well. And I think that still the most plausible reconstruction of the crisis that the author is dealing with is that these Christian communities are being infiltrated by an idea connected to a philosophical religious system called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And it's a, it's a highly speculative system. I'll give you a few markers in it in a minute. But the author, in fact, in, in 1 Timothy 6.20 says, it, uh, it warns them about what is falsely called gnosis, what is falsely called knowledge. And when you read through them all, the author is constantly warning against mystical speculations and ascetic you know, body denying practices and, and the forbidding of marriage and stuff like and, that. And, he, and certain kinds of foods. And yeah. so that, and that, that squares with what we know about the Gnostic systems that developed in the second century, that they, that they often forbade their, their adherents to do all kinds of things that were physical because, because the, the, the Gnostic myth starts with the idea that the physical world is a cosmic mistake created by an inferior deity. And that in this cosmic mess that turned up a physical world, what happened was that some pieces, some little fragments of the, the primordial, we'll call it the one. Uh, if I use the word God, be careful, because we're not talking about a personal deity, but we're talking about this prim- primordial, inwardly turned, silent, beautiful one. But some, some lights, light sparks got shed off of it. <laughs> it was, was shedding like cat dander. <laughs> And, and some of these light sparks got trapped in this body created by an inferior deity. And they long, we long to go home. In the body, in, in the world, there's, but only some of us, some people have received the spark. And then there's the rest, which are, who are basically duds. So, <laughs> so this becomes a problem. So the way you can tell who, who is in the know is, in, in a Christian community where this is being passed around, this idea is some people who buy it then are going to have their own little secret society within the, within the community of these people who have knowledge, right? They know the real stuff. And they have the knowledge to get as that is passwords to the next level. So we're getting, we're getting really, really close to Nauvoo here and you're making me terribly uncomfortable. So, so I'm just saying. Yeah, well, it's all kinds of Gnostic stuff yeah. going on there as far as passwords <laughs> and this whole society of those who are on the inside and then the rest who are oblivious to the, the reality of who they really are. Yes. Except what we know about Gnosticism from the second century is that, well, some Gnostic systems typically were very anti-body. Sadly, there were some not- okay, that's. <laughs> <laughs> so sadly in Nauvoo, there were some not antibody stuff. There were some. When maybe there should have been. So there were some, some unfortunate illicit body stuff going on there. So that's, that's different. But the whole idea of, of, of an inward inner group that has the secret knowledge that's been passed on by a revealer. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, in Gnosticism, you know, it's different forms. Salvation involves awareness, coming to the awareness that, you really 
don't belong here. Your inner spark is trapped in the muck of your body and you're learning secret knowledge. When you die, that spark will be released and you've got secret knowledge that'll help you ascend back through all these levels to get kind of merge back into the one. And interestingly, in 2 Timothy 2, uh, the author criticizes two people who have been teaching that the resurrection has happened already. That's Gnostic, Gnostic Christian groups took the idea of the resurrection of the body and said, no, it's not about bodies. It's about once you know our stuff, then you're already raised from the dead. Right. But this is all about the mind. This is about the mind elevating, elevating, elevating. And so they're saying, oh, the resurrection has already happened. And we can now go through these different upward stages, just like Jesus did. And Jesus might even be the password at one of these places or the the gatekeeper. Interestingly, at the same kind of the same time, the letters, the letters assigned to John, first and second, first, second, and third John, that author is dealing with something similar where adherence to Gnostic ideas are teaching that Jesus is not really a physical being. He's just, he just has a, it's not like a hologram. He took on the disguise of a body so he could get down here and teach us the right stuff. But his, his body, his death, his crucifixion, that doesn't have anything to do with us really. That's so that's going on. Um, Different right places. At the end, yeah. yeah. Right at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. So um, in the pastorals, you can see all kinds of little signs that, the author is having to struggle with this. People are forbidding people to marry. Paul did not forbid people to marry. He said, I wish, you know, the end's near, you know, you, you'll be happier if you're like me and single, but if you need to go ahead, it's fine. And if you get married, have sex, that's first Corinthians seven in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and, and there's even implications that there's sex happening before marriage, but you know, <laughs> that's, but that's a story for another time. So. Why didn't we do that episode? I don't understand. <laughs> this, we'll do the, the sexy New Testament episode. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, there are people who are who are telling other folks, right, the resurrection has already happened. You need to abstain from, don't eat this, don't touch this, don't do this, don't touch that. There, behind it is the idea that creation, the physical creation is bad. And, and in order to be a, a spiritual person, you have to deny the physical creation. It's really important to know that when we get into some of the difficult texts in here, because that's probably behind the scenes. So that's, that remains to me, the most compelling kind of scholarly reconstruction of the background of the letter, the backstory for why the author is doing what the author is doing. Right. And you can, you can see that that's the issue in a number of places. So like, how does, how does the, how does, we'll just call the author, the pastor, because it'll be simpler and some scholars do that, but how does the pastor, pastor say, let's respond to this? Well, number one, focus on sound teaching. Well, what is sound teaching? Sound teaching is the deposit. It's, it's those things that we've gotten that go back somehow to the apostolic era that are now in the form of little, little credos, little, little statements, hold to that. That will, that will see us through. And then the author says, let's stay focused on the scriptures by which he means the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, focus on the scriptures because the scriptures remind us of the good creator and the good creation Remind us that God is involved in the world and not remote from it. And so that that's hitting right at the heart of the Gnostic um, ideas that are infiltrating. And then the author says, uh, let's focus on church structure. Now, what we have in the pastorals is an emerging kind of sense of office. Bishops and presbyters or elders, bishops and presbyters, they're not fully differentiated, but they're, 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 they're related functions. Bishop, overseer, presbyter, elder, then deacons. 
And among the deacons, if you read First Timothy closely, Charmaine was doing this earlier, a reference to women there means women deacons. So there's deacons with women who are deacons. And then possibly a group of women who are called widows, right? Who are real, real widows, but have a certain kind of function within the community. Which is to uphold in prayer and um, support the, the rest of the congregation. So it's kind of a spiritual, um, spiritual formation, spiritual foundation. So there, um, it sounds like there's teaching happening maybe by the widows, but definitely prayer is, is a huge piece of this. But it is seen, it, there are descriptions of what, what they are to do if they've taken on that role in the congregation. So what we have here in the pastorals is, I think Ehrman refers to it as clergy, canon, and creed, right? Creed being the, the creed being those statements that are part of the deposit, canon being the Hebrew scriptures, there's not a New Testament yet, and clergy being bishop, elders, deacons, widows, people who are in charge and who have a certain uh, a certain kind of authority in the, in, the, in the communities. So the other thing the author says is avoid speculation, right? In other words, don't avoid... be talking about silly things. Yeah. Don't be talking about, uh, uses the term wives tales or myth these myths. So, and, and what we know about Gnostic systems from later in the second century, and I think it applies here is that they love, they love to speculate on what was going on up there and out there and, and how we, how we got into this mess in the first place. And they, they actually liked to interpret Genesis, but they gave wild, wild interpretations of it. And, uh, they liked myths and genealogies, typically genealogies of the of the spiritual beings who are above this world. Where did they come from, and how did they how did they evolve out of the one? And the author says, First Timothy one: Do not occupy yourselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations, rather than the divine training that is known by faith. Right. So um, avoid that stuff. And then finally. This is where the hard stuff comes in in, the, in these letters. And that, that, the way, one of the ways the author's, author is trying to deal with the situation uh, is let's keep the same order and decorum and family structure that are in the patriarchal structures of the Roman world. That's where we legitimately are going to chafe when we read, for, especially 1 Timothy. Um, so uh, let's, the author repeats common Greco-Roman tropes about men and women and wives and, and women being gadabouts and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's, this was part of the, 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 the gossipy culture of the Greco-Roman world, but also that was part of the caricaturing. highly, yeah, caricaturing of women in a highly structured patriarchal society. Um, basically, the author saying, let's, we said this earlier, let's not draw too much attention to ourselves. The, the Roman household let's do the Roman household, but even better. And this is where we, as we're reading and studying and struggling with these texts, we have to recognize that when it comes to the description of household relationships in these letters, there's nothing distinctively Christian in them. It's the kind of stuff you would have found in any pagan moral philosopher in this time frame. Um, and so that, that gives us important interpretive lenses to do when, to use when we're, when we're, um, it also, reading these letters. And so. it also helps us see something of the evolution that has happened in the last 40 years. Yeah. Um, 
a Christian development and figuring out how does how does it fit? Does it fit? And how will it survive? So and the, you know, reading these texts, there's a there's a word of warning to us in our own time. Whatever whatever progress you make, you can lose it all. <laughs> you can back you can backtrack on it uh, if you're not careful. You'll backtrack on it. So and that's there's a kind of a backtracking here uh, in a way that if the historical Paul could have been shunted ahead into these churches, I think he might have said, uh, "Why are you saying that?" <laughs> I might have inserted a few other things into his actual letters <laughs> to help remedy that. Yeah, because there is a lot. There is you can see the the loss already yeah. of many of the I would call more radical parts, mm-hmm. both of of Jesus um, interaction with everybody. But I would note especially with women um, and it, Paul's own. Um, seeing women as co-workers, mm-hmm. co-leaders, um, you know, and the, the likelihood that that Romans is actually been has actually been sent with Phoebe and that she's probably the one who is reading it and trans and helping them understand uh, what's in it, you know, translating it into their setting taking this complicated theology and, and explaining it to them. So it's so unlike in many ways. And those who've read parts of first Timothy will probably know the, the pieces that we're talking about. And we'll look a little bit closer at some of those in a minute here. So we've been kind of doing the explaining. We're going to switch into explore though. These are sort of melding together here. I yeah. think a little bit, but I will go first to Karen. What were some questions? <laughs> what were some questions that came up with you? <laughs> So, (laughs) yeah, so as, as a, as a feminist, here was the first thing that really became apparent, not just as I read the text, but then I went and read several commentaries, just refresh my, my memory seminary was a long time ago. So, uh, and it, um, it helped my ire to some, to some degree, but even within community of Christ, I find, um, well, you stated it, Charmaine, you said they've got a problem happening that they're addressing. We have a problem. And our problem is that we have um, many of us lament that the church, and by that I mean community of Christ, is bowing to cultural norms. That we're we're losing our true and and foundational and fundamental purposes, and we're just letting culture drive what we do. And they use these very texts to prove how we're bowing to culture, to cultural norms, which these very texts were bowing to cultural norms. And the fact that they're using them, is that they're bowing to another set of cultural another set of cultural norms because they really are that the just casual reader of this the person that picks up and reads first timothy because it's their turn to preach this coming sunday doesn't really grasp that these um, ideas that are being shared are absolutely contrary to what they would find if they read Paul's actual letters, that he was all about breaking down divisions between people. And, and here we have some structure that is, is sanctifying divisions between people. Um, and, and that's harmful. 
And we need to be willing to, to name that if we're going to use these scriptures. So that's my first just kind of overwhelming kind of that's still with us. We still then, have that with us. In I think that is really one of the dangers, you know, as much as it's helpful to say, you know, cultural or societal expectations or norms. Um, there is not in any culture today only one set of cultural norms yes. so there may be you know those that are more progressive or those that are more inclusive but within our culture there's also the very exclusivistic cultural norms some that come out of religious backgrounds but some that don't and um you know and so people can be just as um influenced and completely directed by a certain set of cultural norms in our time, you know, mm -hmm. Christian nationalism, for example, they can totally have be using those as their gauge for uh, judging other people, while judging other people who have <laughs> are taking the more a progressive and inclusive cultural norms as the way that that we should be moving forward as a church. So it's, it's, uh, it's a handy little phrase cultural yeah. norms or societal norms but mm -hmm. it's also we have to realize that there's several of those going on yeah. and it's which ones we're aligning with are probably um the one will probably reveal a great deal about us <laughs> yeah what do you choose to align with yeah. yes. that's 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 a that's a, a, a i'm going to say right now that's a shallow throwaway use of of the text um and Careful, because I'm going to be talking about social norms. And I know. And that's <laughs> I, don't don't, don't I hear, throw me under the bus yet. I know, no, no, I know. <laughs> I, I hear people say, we need to be countercultural. And the thing is, who, who is not cultural, right? Mm. We are culture-shaped creatures. The question is, do the cultural norms and values we aspire to, do they align with our best understanding of the reign of God that go. Jesus preached? So we, in other words, we have to have some kind of measuring stick. And... In the New Testament, some of the cultural values that are upheld align better and some worse. And I'm willing to say in the pastorals, these, the, these use of Greco-Roman moral, moral tropes about men and women and slaves do not align well. And we have to say that. <laughs> when, when, I was, when, I was a, when I was a, a graduate student at Toronto School of Theology, I had this professor, I absolutely loved him, Heinz Günther. He, he was a New Testament scholar, um, and I remember one time in a, in a seminar, we, we were a bunch of us who were clergy, and, you know, and he was too, he was a Lutheran, he was Lutheran minister, but he was also a great New Testament scholar, and we said, we said, Professor Gunther, what do we do with some of these texts? And he said this, he said, well, sometimes we have to preach against the Bible. <laughs> there you go. That's you know what? That's pure Luther. That's Martin Luther coming out there. And so sometimes we have, we have to say this text, it's part of our working bibliography, but this text does not align with the best things we know about God, Christ, spirit, and community. Which they so, didn't know when they wrote this text. Right. Because some of it simply wasn't available at the so time. I have, an, I have an idea. Instead of shallow uses of the Bible, why don't we teach deeper uses, deep, you know, deep, exegetically sound, theologically reflective. Let's, let's, let's make that part of our church culture so that we don't just have shallow appeals to 
let's let's practice slavery again because it's yeah. in the Bible and and to be against slavery is 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 simply to be cultural. It's like well that's nonsense. Skata, yeah. as the Greeks would say, it's yeah. skata. <laughs> Although it was what many Christians used in the 19th century to yeah. support their and and this this book, First Timothy, is what many Christians used in the 1970s to defeat the ERA. And so, you know, we just have to be be willing to acknowledge that sometimes there are portions that, in context, might have been helpful, but you don't carry those forward. And um, it was also used to push back against suffrage in the early 1900s. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And it's still used to enforce modesty codes, even in community of Christ. We have unwritten modesty codes that that are only directed at women. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So maybe some suggestions for how to how to work with these texts. And okay. and here, I mean, we say and remember, too, mm-hmm. yeah, that ahead. this is not all of First Timothy. Exactly. But there are some pretty, pretty deserved. But it was the part that got me, you know, ticked off enough that I made the notes for today's yes. podcast. Excellent. And, and that need, we need to look at those and, and say, what are these? And so, yeah, it's I'm, important. First thing, what we do with all exegesis, we, 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 the, we start with the, with the assumption, the text deserves to be understood on its terms first. And that means in terms of setting, authorship, original context, who are the first re- potential first readers. We want to understand why is the author writing this stuff to those people? And then, and then we try to discern how might that have been useful to them? Because next point, we are actually reading somebody else's mail and it may not apply to us, right? So those are, those are some things we, we have to, to do. And also the next thing, certainly in community of Christ, we do not want to treat biblical passages as recipes or as Instagram posts from God. That's not how we view scripture. And so let's get that out of our heads. And if, if people from other churches say, your, your church is not biblical, uh, the term biblical covers a multitude of sins. I'm sorry. Uh, we're, we're, how about if we're biblical in a better way, right? That we're, yeah. we're trying to understand the texts and honor them and interpret them carefully, but also say, that's not, that's not for us. So we have to do some, some sifting, sifting and sorting here. And we have to, you know, the theologian Paul Van Buren says the Bible doesn't say anything because the Bible doesn't have a mouth. And there's a lot of mouthy users of the Bible <laughs> who don't understand what the friggin' texts are actually about, right? So we just we just have to name that and call that. Am I getting a little bit passionate about this? Uh, maybe just, just a little bit. Just a little <laughs> bit. The Bible is a, the Bible is not a book. It's a library of very diverse books written in very diverse times and places. By and very different people. Absolutely. And these people sometimes don't agree <clears throat> with each other. And so we have with the pastorals, as with any book, we have to search for the jewels amidst the straw. <laughs> you know, it's not all jewel. Nope. Right? And there's some straw there, a lot of straw. And here's a personal analogy. Guess what? Our own lives are like that too. There's jewels and straw, gems and straw in each of us. So so instead of judging the text, let's just remember that, hey, we're like this too. Um, there are some things, there's some things about Karen and Charmaine that people wouldn't want to know. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't believe that about Charmaine because I think she glows in the dark from her, from her <laughs> halo, but definitely you know, with me. <laughs> definitely with me. <laughs> I, be, I being more straw-y <clears throat> did, not, did not bring myself into this analogy. <laughs> but, but so... 
And so then, then it, for example, when you're, if, if the lecturing has us preaching from first and second Timothy or Titus, then we need to say, uh, not, not say, Paul says here. No, Paul doesn't say here. It's better to say something like the Pauline author says, or the author who is writing on behalf of Paul, who's been dead for a long time. You, you got, we've got to get this, we've got to put this in front of people so that they recognize that. So, um, then we ask our question, do these texts help us understand Pauline theology? Well, first of all, no, they don't. If you want to understand Paul's theology, you have to work, with, you have to give primacy to the seven texts that all scholars agree came from Paul. That's where you start. On the other hand, you can say, well, yes, this, these texts help us understand how Pauline theology was received and reinterpreted and maybe misinterpreted later. Right. So even here, negatively, the, the pastorals can give us an example. But I want to go back to what Charmaine said a few minutes ago. By the way, there, there are some real gems, some real beautiful gems in these texts. Uh, in fact, I preached from Second Timothy a couple of months ago at, uh, in, a, in a reunion. And I, I love Second Timothy is a powerful, poignant text to preach from. So so there's some beautiful stuff here. And uh, I wanted to give one example of where. Um, the, the, so the author of First Timothy especially uses some of this uh, stock in trade moral teaching that the pagan philosophers were, were preaching in the marketplace every day. Uh, here's an example. Plutarch. Plutarch is a great moralist, Greek moralist. He's writing from about this period, late first, early second century. And he has a text called Advice to Brides and Grooms. Let me read you some of it. Thank you, Abby. What's that? <clears throat> it's like Dear Abby. Yeah. The, the, these moralists, they, they gave people advice about everything. But Plutarch says this. So it is with women also. If they subordinate themselves to their husbands, they are commended. But if they want to have control, they cut a sorrier figure than the subjects of their control. And control ought to be exercised by a man over the woman, not as the owner has control over a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. Now, that's a Greek moralist teaching how husbands and wives ought to behave. And you don't need me to, to parse it because of... <laughs> but it comes out of that that whole, was it Arist Aristotle that said women are so of the earth that they're like lower than animals on the scale of right of earthiness. I mean, the whole idea was very much a Greco-Roman idea of where, where, where women kind of were in the order of creation. And so the, the author first, first Timothy, this is, this is the same, this is his worldview. Yeah. And there's, you look, you'll note that there's no acknowledgement that, <clears throat> that husbands or men might be <clears throat> mean spirited or controlling, right? Violent or without good intentions, there's nothing that would indicate that. Mm -hmm. uh, only that men with, you know, it's, they're like the soul and they're so gentle and wonderful. Right. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, please. <clears throat> and the soul or mind in this, in that culture is considered higher than mm -hmm. the body. It controls mm -hmm. the body. Again, and that earthiness of women who can't yeah. really help themselves, but be, be who they are. Um, and as this lesser, 
impulse driven being. So the author of First Timothy <clears throat> is, re basically repeats the conventional wisdom about conventional cultural wisdom about husbands and wives and men and women and who's 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 above and who's below and so on. Right. Um, here's here's the issue for interpretation. There's nothing distinctively Christian about that. Right. Paul himself tries to understand marriage Christologically. The author of Ephesians, even later, tries to understand marriage Christologically. And, and <clears throat> they both come up with a kind of, <clears throat> if not equality, because like, yeah, I think we have to be pretty straight there, mutuality. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> that's quite, quite different from what this author does and, and what the culture would have done. So we, here's the thing. Interpret, interpret, interpret. We've got to interpret. We've got to make, we've got to make decisions. <clears throat> we, we do have to rank texts. And there's nothing distinctively Christian about that kind of view of men and women and marriage. Mm -hmm. It's ancient Roman patriarchy <clears throat> at work. And so we just have to name that and say, all right, we're not going to use this text in a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to talk about the man being the head and the woman being whatever, you know, because, <laughs> because it, you know, the pagan philosopher Plutarch would say it too. And it's like, well, what's distinctively Christian about that? Right. Not that I have anything against pagan philosophers. It's just, they don't have anything to tell us about what it means to be Christian. Right. right. So they you know, let them do what they do. And so um, interpret, interpret, interpret. And just something to add here is that probably an unfortunate consequence for us over the long haul in Christian history is that the, that Paul has gotten himself interpreted through the lens of the pastorals. Yeah. And that's, that's been an unfortunate <clears throat> consequence Although he does have some of his own stuff that gets him in trouble periodically. But he does. He's got his own stuff. He does, but um, the pastorals tame and domesticate Paul. Yeah. And that's that's not that's not going to help us understand the historical Paul, nor is it going to help us understand earliest Christianity in its most radical form. So um, on the other hand, as <clears throat> as we've been saying, gosh, there's some absolutely beautiful stuff in the pastorals that really deserves time and attention and um you know so these the the author of these texts thinks of salvation as having a universal reach god our savior who desires everyone to be saved that's first timothy and titus uh the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all mm -hmm. right there's no sense that the the saved are a tiny group of the elect uh rather God's reach is universal here. So that's Pauline, right? That's Paul. Um, so yes, God is, God's salvation is for believers and not believers. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll be better for believers because they can participate in it more, but God's desire is for all to be saved. And, and also, you know, it, it, it breaks your heart to read this part of second Timothy, where the, the author is depicting Paul in his final days. He seems to know stuff about Paul be, Paul being abandoned by pretty much all of his colleagues and friends. He's, he's alone. He very likely died in Rome during the reign of Nero. And the author of Second Timothy has Paul say, as for me, I'm already being poured out as a libation. The, the offering that nobody got to use, it's just poured out. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith, right? It's, Paul wouldn't talk about it quite like that, but it's, it's absolutely beautiful, right? It's, it just, it just wrenches your heart and it's, 
clear that this author knew something about Paul's final days and that Paul, the person who had a team of many people, men and women, different ethnic ethnicities, Paul died alone in the end. And so it's a, the author seemed to know that. And uh, yet Paul hung in there with it right till the very end. So I don't know, uh, some, some amazing stuff. Any other questions, Karen, before we go on into experience? No, I, I think it, this is a really good example of what you have really um, told us to be careful of since we started Hebrew. And that is, um, we must look at scripture in context and explore a little bit and avoid that shallow interpretation that you talked about, Tony, because we don't take the time to dig deeper a little bit and discover the context of something. Yeah. yeah. And we can't say it enough, you know, that in community of Christ, we don't see scripture as God dictated, you know, <laughs> these are human beings. And, and as we go into the experience part, you know, that's our goal in this part is to approach a scripture by considering, you know, how does, it highlight the lives of real people trying to live out what they believe in their relationship with God. And so sometimes <clears throat> it's the writer's own experience or the people that he's writing to, or sometimes it's us. How, how can the scripture affect us and our relationship with God? And, you know, and that means we're going to look at the writer. What is influencing him in this case? Um, what are the cultural pressures? What are the pressures within the church? Um, what is their worldview? In this case, um, we can tell that this is a person who has a sense that men should have privilege over women. Um, I mean, I think it's clear. And so these writings, all scripture is heavily influenced by what's happening in the writer's life. And so this is their attempt to write down in this case, again, pastoral advice. These are, there's some real issues here that are happening in this congregation. And he's trying to, or in congregations, probably more likely, that, he, that he's trying to give them some guidelines to help them win their way through the maze of difficulties that, that they have. And, and the maze of difficulties that, are always there in congregational life. And so that means that, you know, his ideas that are shaped by his cultural norms, uh, his biases, well, of course, they're going to come out in his writing, just as they would and do in our own today. So, so we, we don't determine if a scripture is valuable by whether it says exactly what we would say today, because that would be silly to think that they would say in the past exactly what we would say today with all of the things that shape us. But the purpose of the scripture is to be a window, a window into someone else's relationship with God and with people. So today we're going to look at a difficult text and not for the, the purpose of agreeing with it or suggesting that it's how we should live or to grow spiritually, but it's in order to give us a window into the author's world and to see what there might be. And we've kind of touched on this already that, re that um, relates to us as well. We will see he is very susceptible to some cultural norms and biases. Um, 
and we see that they don't fit with Christ's or Paul's more mat, um, more radical message and approach. So, but as but in looking at that, we will examine ways in which we may unconsciously and uncritically um, let our own cultural norms shape our faith and discipleship in rather unhelpful ways. So here's the text we're going to work with. One of those infamous ones, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. And it's even hard to, to read some of this. I have to just admit that right up front. So I desire then that in every place, the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. <clears throat> for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. All right, so oh, all my unfavoritist ideas in pretty much the whole Bible, kind of right here in this one little one little passage. So first of all, this is one of those places where maybe we do need to preach against what's in the Bible. And especially we need to acknowledge that this, these ideas are in direct opposition to Paul's actual teachings on who has access to Christ and to God. Because here there is this sense, especially in that verse 11, let a woman learn in full submission uh, and that women can't teach uh, or have authority over a man, that would imply that women can only learn about God and therefore have access to God or Christ um, by a man's teaching. And, and Paul didn't see that. Paul saw as Christ, Christ's presence here on earth meant that all people have access to God. That's part of the the whole message that Jesus lived. And so who should be speaking in the church? Well, even in some of the places in first Corinthians where Paul is trying to figure out whether, you know, they have obviously have this question about women having their hair up or down and worship. And, and he's really struggling with that, but he's acknowledging that women are prophesying and speaking in church and that that's, and he's talking about it in a way that says, well, of course, that's how things go. Um, and so this, this idea is, is completely in opposition. Again, the likelihood, uh, this is, would be pretty strong evidence that this author does not have um, Paul's other writings in front of him. Because I think he wouldn't have been able to get away with this. And then the very meaning of grace, uh, you know, the whole, she'll be saved through childbearing. Um, whoa. Um, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> someone in the, in the new interpreters, um, 
study Bible. It's it talks about how this is an interpretation of Genesis 2:15 <clears throat> to 22, but it is a somewhat forced reading of it, meaning it's kind of emphasized the wrong thing in it. Um, but Paul would never say that. Salvation comes through Christ for all who believe in Christ. And so to put this out there is that that's how women will be saved would be totally contrary uh, to that whole idea of grace of Christ as uh, God's message of grace to all of creation. And those first um, few verses, um, no, actually the middle ones, 11 and 12, um, <clears throat> those come right from household codes, uh, codes of proper domestic behavior that were popular in antiquity. And again, from the New Interpreter Study Bible. So here is an author who is, um, is his own opinions and his own background are coming out here. And, you know, it's really, there's a part of me that, um, that wants to kind of diagnose what his issue is with <laughs> women. Um, and I have no way of really knowing, but it is here on the page. It's, it's obvious that for him, women are less than, and they need to be instructed. So even in the earlier spot, um, sorry, it'll be in the later spot where it talks about bishops and deacons and it's, and there's no gendered language about the deacons. Um, it talks about deacons and then it talks about, then there's some extra advice to women deacons, and then going back to deacons in general. And so he feels like he has to control women's behavior, the whole thing about women being gadabouts and gossips. Um, and only women who are truly widows should be on the list. And the list here are those who would be supported, but also those who would be seen as these kind of sp the spiritual praying foundation of the congregation. Don't want the younger women on there because they're still sexually active. Well, he doesn't say that, but yeah, he does. And they, they might just, they might uh, embarrass us by their going after men and um, maybe doing inappropriate things. Uh, so there's, there's a control issue going on for sure. So um, I think this is just one of those places where we see this coming clearly coming through the page, uh, some of the cultural expectations, uh, household codes that, that he's affected by and that he's using perhaps because of um, some issues in this congregation and just perhaps because that's the way he thinks <laughs> the world should be. Uh, kind of an authoritarian, definitely leaning on, relying on the patriarchy and hierarchy that can come through both the Old Testament and his culture. And, and he's lost, or perhaps he never knew the revolu revolutionary ways in which Paul and Jesus included women as full disciples, as leaders, and as the financiers of their work. Um, he seems to not know that at all. 
So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, perhaps we use it to reflect back on ourselves. And here's a couple of questions for us to ask ourselves because we're not beyond being influenced negatively um, or un-Jesus-like <laughs> by the culture's influence on us. So when do I find myself judging women by standards that are culturally set rather than Jesus set? And this is an equal question for men and for women. Um, when do we look at women and say, oh, really, that, that's too bad, you know, <laughs> kind of like, oh, you know, fashion uh, judgments, uh, comportment judgments, um, how outspoken they might be, um, but also other ways, uh, education, but too much or too little. Um, there's just all kinds of ways that women in our culture today are judged. And so where do I find myself judging women by st standards that are culturally set rather than Jesus set? And maybe for women, maybe you're judging yourself by those as well. And to maybe be able to see the difference might be helpful in letting go of some of those. And then the second, in what ways do I assume I am better than others based on gender or gender identity? I think that's a question we need to dig deep on. Because, you know, sometimes I can think badly of uh, men. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's just a question that we all need to be to be looking at. So our society has lots of dismissive ways of characterizing or even caricaturing those who are defined by poverty, immigration status, physical appearance, mental health issues, gender, sexuality, incarceration, history, addiction, and, and there's more. There's all kinds of other things that our society gives us so that we can just kind of write off other people. We don't have to take them seriously. We don't have to see them as a child of God. We don't have to see them as our brother and sister. And we all are influenced with it by that, even if we don't always buy in. So again, some self-awareness uh, questions to ask. Who else do I give myself permission to marginalize? using society's trivializing or belittling views. And that covers all of us, whichever set of uh, cultural um, biases we may be using. And here's another question to help us look honestly at our own stuff. Who do I find it hard to see Christ in? Who am I afraid to acknowledge as equal to me? So 
we can see that the author of First and Second Timothy and Titus, we can see him struggling with the difference between what culture says about all people and what Jesus and Paul said and tried to exemplify about all people. So when we are honest, we will probably, if we're honest, when and if we're honest, we will probably see this author struggle in ourselves. So I have one more place to go. So being aware is the first step, which we've been doing with these previous questions. And I'd encourage you to, to spend some time with those questions yourself, prayerfully, uh, see where that takes you. You might be surprised. So that's the first step, become aware. And the second is planning for intentional change with the help of the spirit. So here's a little journaling activity that I encourage you to take a few minutes with at least and see where, where it might take you and see how the spirit may touch you in this. Dear spirit of love and acceptance, help me to see, and that can be a person or a group of people in a new way. Help me open my eyes, my heart, and my life to them. As I try to shake off society's judgment of them, please replace that with, and then continue with your journaling from there and see where your own heart and the spirit might take you. Thank you for those, um, Charmaine, and especially for highlighting a particular difficult passage within uh, First Timothy. So in our, in our interest of time today, only because uh, some of us are rushed, and by some of us, I mean me. <laughs> so my, I do have a closing thought, and I found it um, really interesting because you quoted a Lutheran minister who was a New Testament scholar that you studied with in Princeton, and mine is from my favorite Lutheran minister, who's Nadia Boltzweber, because... Um, she is, because she swears. I'll be honest, that's why. <laughs> but she said this. So my argument in this book is this. And she's talking about her book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. We should not be more loyal to an idea, a doctrine, or an interpretation of a Bible verse than we are to people. If the teachings of the church are harming the bodies and spirits of people, we should rethink those teachings. So I think that um, in a nutshell is kind of what you shared with us about looking at um, the pastorals, not all bad, not all good, but there are some things we need to rethink for our own time and place. So do we know what we're going to be exploring next? Do. Yes, we'll be going into James next. Oh, all right. The book of James, which is a favorite, I think, of Restoration People. So we'll see where that goes for us in our next episode. Until then, I'm Karen Peter, and you've been listening to Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith, our navigators through the New Testament. This is called New Brew, part of Project Zion Podcast. We thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. 
Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 